right, all right, here we go. It's episode 43 of RJ Bell's Dream Preview, the NBA edition. I'm your host, Sleepy J. You guys can find me on Twitter at SleepyJ underscore pregame. Joined here by NBA betting expert, got Mackenzie Rivers in the house. You guys can find him on Twitter as well, at Mac and Rivers. You guys can always get us at pregame.com. Mackenzie, here we go, NBA Finals. We got Boston and we have Golden State. You and I, we're going to go ahead, we're going to talk through... Uh, some of the talking points that we want to go ahead, we want to cover. We're not looking to go ahead and get into a ton of bets today. Kind of want to sharpen our pencils a little bit here. But we want to go ahead, we want to show everybody kind of the, how we're going to make the sausage here and break down some of the matchups. We're going to talk about the experience, home court advantages, the things that we like for these teams, dislike. So you and I, we're going to go ahead and break down a bunch of stuff here. I'm curious what you think about Boston, the fact that they survived. Jimmy Butler missed that late three there. You know, how do you think that Boston fared getting out of Game 7, you know, going into the finals? I've never seen so many shows start with the Eastern Conference Finals loser the day after a Game 7, but it kind of was the story that what almost was was almost a more fascinating story than than the result, which was pretty close to the spread. Celtics were two-and-a-half-point favorites. It was the third time in NBA betting history where we had a road favorite in a Game 7. The other two games involved Chris Paul. His Clippers were road favorites, a game they lost to the Houston Rockets in 2015. And then these Warriors that we're going to talk about coming up later, probably the best team ever, in my opinion, were pushed to seven games against the Houston Rockets in 2017. And they were six-point favorites against a 61 team in Houston, who admittedly didn't have uh, their second-best player in Chris Paul. So they got it done. They were road favorites that... Got it done. The last six years now, 64% ATS NBA road favorites. I think there's value on road teams literally because of the feeling of watching an NBA game when the home team gets raucous. And that's what it was in the fourth quarter. All the momentum, a 13-point lead down to two with minutes left. However, and Stephen A. Smith was going on about how the Celtics were just not intelligent in their in their shot selection and they were getting up shots early and they were turning over the ball. Actually, rewatched the fourth quarter of that game, and there was maybe one or two times Jalen Brown with 50 seconds forcing the issue with some shot on the clock. So there was one or two times where I thought, "That's bad basketball." You know, this is the kind of way you blow have one of the most historic fourth quarter la- collapses in the final minutes. The other 95 percent of the time, the other 19 offensive possessions that they had down the stretch, they were fine. They they did what they do. They're a very high variance team. A lot of the times because they they're a team that's whoever you force to take a three is fine taking a three. They were getting the ball out of Jason Tatum's hands, out of Jalen Brown's hands late. So, yeah, Marcus Smart took the last six shots for the Celtics, and it might not look good. You know, it's an easy Bill Simmons, uh, you know, diatribe to say, how can Marcus Smart be the only guy taking shots down the court? Because that's the way the Heat were playing it. And I thought they actually played pretty – I thought the process – Nate Duncan said this, and I thought he said it well. The fourth quarter process wasn't really bad for the Celtics. It's just a make-or-miss league high variance situations and they almost blew it, but I actually thought they played pretty decently. And now I think that takes this it takes the monkey completely off their back. This is the mountaintop. They made four Eastern Conference finals in the last six years, but they hadn't made this mountaintop. Now I think, you know, obviously they'd rather win, but I think that free flowing, getting your shots up style uh is going to be a lot better in the in the next round because I think they got a lot of the a lot of the pressure off their backs. So you mentioned that the Warriors were pushed in that one series that they had played. I'm curious what you think about this series. I did not think that this was going to go seven games down to almost the last shot. I thought Miami would get beat in this series 
I want to say rather comfortably, maybe five, six games at most. But I didn't see Boston getting pushed here all the way to the brink. With that said, McKenzie, we were looking at prices the other day, series prices for potential matchups for the finals. And the Miami Heat, I'm just going off the top of my head, maybe it was around minus 230 for Golden State, maybe minus 240, somewhere in that area. Based off of what you saw, this was a seven-game series, as I said, almost down to the last shot. How are they pricing Golden State as a minus 160 favorite here when we could be looking at the Miami Heat? Do you think there's a mispricing there? What is your thoughts on the pricing? Or are they looking at this Boston team as you know, maybe one of the better teams that we've seen over the years, which is one of the weakest potential Warrior teams that we've seen in a long time? And we look at that pricing, do you feel like there's something amiss? So a week ago, the Warriors and the Celtics were considered even teams. Then game six happens, eight and a half point favorites, they lose, the Celtics do, to the Heat. Game seven, it's a similar game line where they're two and a half point favorites, six point swing, going from at Boston to at Miami. So they were still considered, you know, net versus the Heat, about five and a half points better. By the way, over a seven game series, they played seven times. They were 5.3 points better on average, almost exactly what the market had projected. But you're right. The the Warriors are not considered even teams with the Celtics right now. They were minus 130. They're now minus 160. A major, and I'm curious your thoughts on this. Uh, RJ makes fun of me about my my market theories. I haven't been in this sports betting industry nearly as long as as RJ, 30 years, or, or even you. You're about 10 years older than me. But one of two things are happening. Either... Boston is being punished for bad game six and a relatively bad game seven. Game six, a lot of their words came out, a bunch of turnovers, sloppy play. Game seven, for whatever reason, uh, ended up being a nail biter. But, you know, we talk about this all the time. There's been 100 games played, 90 plus games played from these teams. The Celtics just beat the Bucs by eight points a game. Then they beat the Heat by five points a game over the last 14 games. So why are they 30 cents worse than they were last week? Is it just that the public is getting involved right now? Is it just the turning of the clock where it's opening up on more books? It's kind of on people's minds. Memorial Day weekend. They got some time to think about it. Do you think sharp money's moving this number? Or do you think this is kind of just, well, the Warriors are in the finals for the sixth time, so we're going to bet them? I think it comes down to the fact that they were pushed seven games and they almost lost. I think that's one factor. I think the other factor is that you know, we were looking at that price, you know, a couple of days back. It was game six. Everybody expected Boston to go in and win that one. They were going to get some rest and they were going to go on the road. And now it's, well, now you have to wait an extra day and you have to play an extra game. And now you have to go on the road uh, against a Warriors team that's just as rested as they were going to be. So I think it has a lot to do with going from game six to game seven, missing a couple of days extra rest. And the fact that they almost got beat. I think a lot of people are hesitating to go ahead and, and probably lay their money on Boston. Could even go back to the Buck series. Like they had to go seven there. You know, you went seven and seven. That that could be, you know, something that people are looking at, thinking that, you know, that they could be a little bit tired going into the finals too. So I agree with the move. I think that you have to go ahead and make some type of an adjustment. Thirty cents seems perfectly fine to me. I I, I honestly don't have don't have any problem with that. If Boston would have taken care of business in game six then I guess maybe I could understand, you know, the minus 130, 140. But the fact that they didn't, I believe that the market had to move, and I believe it, it moved correctly. I kind of agree with you that it's 
about the game six and game seven and not necessarily just the fact that Boston uh, didn't look so good, didn't cover uh, game six and barely covered game seven, but just the, the literal amount of days rest that it affects game one, I think it's about a point and a half at least of value in game one and winning game one would go a long way towards winning the series. You only have to get four of these. So there's some numbers behind it. Since 2003, as far as our database goes back, there's been about 50 times the team was off a of game seven playing a team that was not off a of game seven. They've covered 18 of those occasions, only 38%. However, you mentioned rest, and the Warriors are going to be off uh, as much rest as any team versus a team off of a game seven due to the schedule. So teams that are off of a game seven, like the Boston Celtics are, versus a team with at least six days of rest, like the Warriors have, those teams are 2-13 and 13 straight up, 3-12 and 12 against the number. They're losing, on average, by 17 points per game. They've lost 8 of the last 9. So that's not nothing to me. I know it's only a 15-game sample or a 50-game sample, depending uh, on how narrow you want to drill down in. But I think that really hurts them game one, and I think that uh, is enough to move 30 cents on the series just from that one adjustment, even if we don't make any power ratings adjustment to the Celtics. So let me ask you this, going back to prices for a series. What was the series price for Boston against Miami, and what was the series price for Golden State versus Dallas? Because going into those two series, I felt, and I, and I felt like I talked to a lot of people that thought that Dallas was really going to push Golden State and that Boston was going to pretty much cruise past the heat, and it was kind of a flip-flop. So I believe maybe the mindset of everybody going into those two series maybe just completely flipped too, and maybe that was a cause of the market reaction too based off of you know that pricing and the results of those two series. Every now and then you get a, a favorite that literally nobody picks. And that's what happened with the Warriors. They were minus 215 favorite at close before game one. The Mavericks were plus 185. But anyone who had an opinion either thought it was you know about right or that the Mavericks were like crazy value. Couldn't believe it. Plus 250. People showing their tickets on Twitter. And I don't really hear from those people at the moment. There's, It seemed like even though they won four out of five, covered four out of five, it was like, oh, yeah, that was supposed to happen. Didn't really seem like that was the perception beforehand. The Celtics, you mentioned, uh, they were minus 175 favorites coming into game one. Pretty crazy that they were two-point underdogs at that open, but minus 175 favorites. Uh, and it was because of this game seven factor where they were probably you know three points better, the market estimated. Tyler Hero going out probably hurt them a point and a half or two. So by the end of the series, there's a five-point difference. But coming into the series, I really think it was about the three-point difference, and that was what the market was adjusting. Just because the Celtics were off of Game 7, the Heat had just won in six over the Sixers. Well, you have to wonder if Hero was actually healthy, if he could flip a game, or if he can you know, change Game 7 um, you know, to a positive degree. Because, I mean, he played a little bit, but it looked like he was clearly not himself. I mean, sixth man of the year, rightfully so. Um, didn't even look like he was present in that in that entire series now one of the things i i noticed mckenzie going through a lot of the uh the new stuff today was uh the playoff experience for both of these teams and there's a stat out there and this stat's going to be thrown all over the place and i think that you know you and i could probably break this down a little bit 
and not buy into, you know, what the media is trying to sell when it comes to this playoff experience. Correct me if I'm wrong. 123 games total for the finals for all the Warriors players and zero for the Boston Celtics. Did I see that stat right or am I like off by a bunch of games or completely just wrong? No, you are 100% correct, sir. According to ESPN Stats and Info, this is the third time that there's been over a 100-game gap between one team and another team. And it is 123 finals games experience for the Warriors, zero for the Celtics. Al Horford, by the way. And Al Horford had been the longest tenured, most playoff games of any player that never made the finals. He will break that record uh, and get off the snide. But the last time, maybe you remember 1997, the Chicago Bulls had 100-plus experience over the Utah Jazz, and they ended up winning in six. Let me make my case for why the playoff experience in the NBA Finals matters the least out of all the professional sports. And then you can push back or you can kind of agree here. And I'm not going to get too deep in this. I think with the Super Bowl, it's one game. Like, you better show up for that one game. And I think that there's a process even leading up to the Super Bowl. We know all about media week and all that stuff like that. You know, if I have a guy like Tom Brady and and Rob Gronkowski in my corner that's telling me, you know, what to expect, you know, the week leading up to the Super Bowl and what's going to happen, you know, in and during that game before, after and all that stuff, celebration parades and all that. I feel like for one game, like I want that experience. And I feel like for, let's just say like the World Series, let's, let's talk baseball. Um, that you have to prepare for different pitchers every night, different guys coming out of the bullpen, uh, potentially different lineups, different umpires. I think there's a lot of different aspects in there that are harder to kind of prepare for, and you need to have a lot of experience to do well in those games. And I think the NHL is, is similar to you know baseball in a sense where you, know, you could have a, a different goalie on a different night, and there's a lot more players that you have to worry about. They could throw – you know, three, four, five, six different lineups out there with with different players and things like that. But I think for the NBA Finals, you know, we're, we're going, you know, eight, nine guys rotation-wise. It's a change of, of home court venue, but I just don't feel like there's a whole lot of uh, experience that's needed going into the NBA Finals like this 123-0 to zero that I'm sure we're going to hear and it's going to be pounded upon uh, throughout the next couple of days leading all the way up to Game 1. So although the the Warriors have a lot of finals experience over the Celtics, I don't think it's going to be as much of a factor as as what the media is going to pound uh, in our heads over the next couple of days. I'm not sure if you agree with that, but I think the other sports, when you have championship experience, uh, goes a lot further than, than, than the NBA finals do. So I'm not sure if you agree with that, but that's kind of where I sit with that. I totally agree with it. The first thing that pops in my mind is, Tom Brady in 10 Super Bowls knows exactly how long the halftime is. He knows exactly what the breakfast is like that day because it is just one game. And people talk about not being able to sleep the night before, and there's just nothing you can do to uh, avoid the extremeness of one result, three-hour period, going to define the rest of your life. And there was an ESPN preview of this finals matchup that said the biggest weakness for the Celtics may be the brightness of the lights. I kind of disagree with that. I think that's actually a strength that they have, you know, Jason Tatum just played his fifth NBA game seven. Like he kind of, you know, stared at the barrel of what a failure of a season would look like. And he avoided it. He hit enough shots. He scored 26 points. And, you know, now I think the monkey's off their back. So I don't think that um, 
It's just one more round. It's just one a couple weeks later in June. This is not this is a series they haven't been before, but this hasn't been uh, the extremeness of the moment. I don't think it's going to be that different for these Celtics teams that have been that have been to four conference finals in the past six years as an organization. You know, with all that said, why don't we go ahead and talk about if either of these teams have a home court advantage, the the Warriors will have home court in this series. I'll make a case that Boston is going to face probably the toughest road test that they've played in these playoffs uh, because the Warriors' home court advantage, in my opinion, is the strongest in the league. I'm not sure if you agree with that, but on the flip side, I think Golden State could be in for their toughest road test. I don't know what you think about Dallas or Memphis or Denver as far as you know going on the road in those venues, but I think Boston could be a little bit tough here for Golden State, but uh, I'm going to side with Golden State having the better home court. I'm not sure if you factor that into the line or anything like that, but I do believe this is going to be the uh, the most ruckus crowd that Boston's seen um, throughout these playoffs. So historically, the Celtics have not had that big of an impact. A lot of East Coast teams, the New York Knicks, are actually really low on the list. The Philadelphia 76ers are really low on the list. If you look at the Celtics' home straight-up margin and road straight-up margin, about a four-and-a-half-point difference. So a point and a half less than the usual six-point swing. What do you think the difference between San Francisco and Oakland has been? Because I've actually been surprised these playoffs, how loud it's been in Chase Center. Uh, maybe it's just the nostalgia, but it, I, I thought for a while when they first went to Chase Center, I mean, they weren't in the playoffs, so we didn't know that that home, home crowd had kind of died down a bit. But it hasn't seemed that way, obviously undefeated in this year's playoffs at home. I wonder if w- when they were building this place that they looked at like, you know, the past results that they've had at home because that, I mean, that home crowd, in my opinion, is probably the best in the NBA if they look to, you know, make it louder and if they could pack more bodies. And I'm not sure if the capacity from uh, the Oracle to this place is, is you know, it hasn't gone up a little bit. But um, I haven't seen any die down, in my opinion, you know, from, from the Warriors crowd at all. Slightly less capacity than Oracle, 18,000 versus about 19,000. But, uh, I mean, we see a Cameron indoor. The way they you know, kind of align it up and, you know, they're light years ahead. That's what they tell us. I'm sure they did look into exactly that kind of advantage and how to maximize it. Well, I think you have to when you're, you know, dealing with a professional sports team. It's like, oh, yeah, let's just, you know, open the place up and and leave it to where, you know, the fans are, you know, 50 feet away from the court and things like that. So I'm sure they looked at, you know, looked at all that stuff. By the the way, this is uh, on topic. So the Warriors, this is the sixth finals that they've had. This is the fifth time that they've had home court advantage. But it is also the sixth time that they've been favorites. On average, they've been about a 71% chance projected to win each of their final series. However, this is the first time out of six finals trips for Steph, Clay, Draymond, and everybody, Steve Kerr. This is the first time that they're less than a minus 200 favorite currently at minus 160. So this is, the market is saying, the closest entering the finals the Warriors have been, the Celtics have been, closer than... The Raptors with Kawhi Leonard, Celtics are closer to these Warriors than any LeBron James team was. So are the Warriors that much worse than they were a few years ago? Or are the Celtics, you know, a historically great team? Again, they're one of only three teams to ever be a road favorite in a Game 7. It's hard for me to think that Boston's a historically great team when they literally almost lost against Miami in the last series. They've got pushed to seven games as a, as a pretty decent-sized favorite. Uh, the fact that they went up against Milwaukee without one of their best players, got pushed to seven games, almost got beat in that series. It's hard for me to think that that team is is going to go down on an all-time list that 
know, you, I, or anybody is really going to remember, you know, 30 years from now. I think we will remember it as Warriors team if they, in fact, go ahead and win this title. And I think this is probably the second best Warriors team that we've seen. Uh, KD's team, obviously, probably number one. That's going to be a, a team that, that we never forget. Steph, Clay, and, and Draymond, um, I don't see how this team isn't better than them. Uh, you bring in Andrew Wiggins, who, you know, arguably is probably the replacement for KD, so a uh, sizable downgrade there. But you now have a Jordan Poole. Could we argue he was one of the hottest players going into the playoffs? And he's remained, I don't want to say on fire, but uh, he's still playing at, at, at an extremely hot level. So I don't see how this Warriors team can't be can't be said that they're not the, the second-best Warriors team that we've seen um, in the finals. I'm not sure if you agree with that. I will agree with – I will say this, and it's a bold statement. The Warriors – this Warriors team is as good as the 70-win Warrior team. I mean, people talk about regular season statistics. and All of the stats, ESPN stats and info, and it hasn't been done, but they were 5-0 and in overtime. And especially by the time they got to the finals, they were banged up. They had just gone 3-1 and with a Thunder team didn't have James Harden, weren't really as good as they've been historically. They were down 3-1, that team was, the 70-plus win team. And then once Steph Curry got hurt entering that series, I mean, that, there's a reason why they were only minus 220 to a Cavs team that had never won anything in their franchise history. I think this team, with Jordan Poole's ascendance, Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, you know, 10% worse. But they have they have more bodies. They have... Man, I don't even know who I want to say. It. I don't. I don't even know. It's cra- it sounds crazy to say it out loud, but I just think that Warriors seventy win team uh, is historically overrated, especially by the time they got to the finals. So let's look at, at it real quick. The Warriors were minus two twenty the first year they got there. They were twenty eight to one entering the two thousand fourteen fifteen season. By the time they got there to the Cavs, that didn't have Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving got hurt game one. They were minus two twenty. The next year, come back against the Thunder. 2016, everybody's back. Kyrie's hurt. Kyrie's healthy. Kevin Love's healthy. They were minus 220 again, the exact same odds. The next year where I think they were a lot better, this is the team that I think the Warriors uh, ascended to their peak. They were minus 300. What a crazy low price. Because the next year, 2018, they obviously win in five games in 2017. 2018, they were minus 1,100 against this Cavs team. Then they were minus 270 versus the Raptors. And then, like I said, this is the lowest they've ever been, minus 160. It's an interesting case. I don't think many people would agree with this, but I think the Warriors are deeper than they've been uh, in any of these previous years. So I think the, I think outside of 17, 18, and 18, 19, this is the best Warriors team. I'll say that. Well, I think this team is certainly deeper, but they're going to need to get some bodies back. And, and we'll talk a little bit about that. I think you have a debate on your hands there, Mackenzie, but I think I think you'll probably lose that debate just because we're talking about one of the greatest players of all time uh, in, in Kevin Durant. So we could sit here and debate that forever. And, and look, I, I, I love debates like that, but I, I think you would probably lose that, and I would lose that too if I were on your side. But it's close. I mean, these, these, teams, are, are, these teams could do so much uh, when it comes to Golden State. I do want to ask you this, and I know you're probably going to have to look this up, stay on topic here and let's circle back to the home court advantage the Warriors have played what six out of the last eight finals were they ever not the home court team yes one time against the Raptors they were they had to go to Toronto for the first two games they were still minus 270 favorites 
That with uh, the market having no idea whether and how good Kevin Durant would be, he ended up playing 12 minutes in the series before going down. Okay, so they've held home court in every series but that. But you and I fully expected them to probably win that series had KD and Clay, you know, not gone down. Yeah, I think I think if you keep if you get one of those guys fully healthy, they probably win that series. Okay, so with the home court advantage, McKenzie, then should we take into consideration that this team has had home court in the finals, you know, five out of the six finals appearances that they've had? Is that something that we could actually say we have data here that, that supports that this team's pretty good when they do hold home court advantage? So across the NBA, last 20,000 games, road teams have been the way to go, 51%. However, it's different in the playoffs. It's a different beast, and I'm not sure – how much is the home team having the advantage or how much is better teams being better in the playoffs and not letting up? So in the playoffs, being home, you're 52% since 2003. And the Warriors, uh, slightly better in the finals. They're 8-7, and seven, and they're slightly better on the road, actually, 8-5 and five ATS in the, in the Kerr era. So I think it's something I'm generally – I mean, it kind of goes against my instincts to over-credit home court advantage because I think – Public money generally overcredits it, overcredits it. So it's a factor, but I, it's generally a factor that I, I don't want to, uh, you know, over-influence my betting. Well, it probably wouldn't influence your betting knowing that Boston's actually been uh, pretty good here on the road this, this entire playoffs. Let's move on to our next topic here, and this is something that I wanted to go ahead and bring up with you. And I wanted to kind of identify, you know, McKenzie's biggest strengths and biggest weaknesses for each team. Now, I went ahead and I did some work on this. So why don't we start with Boston Celtics' uh, biggest strength? Why don't we start there? You tell me what you think Boston's biggest strength is uh, going into the finals. I think it's their lack of a weakness on offense, where Marcus Smart scored 20 in three different games in that series, and they won all three of those games. I think there's not – like someone like Jordan Poole is going to have a very difficult time uh, you know, finding any rest, no rest for the wary when – they don't play that many guys. They play seven guys generally with with Pritchard and, and White off the bench and Grant Williams, so I guess eight guys. And all of them can score. All of them can put it on the ground, and all of them can shoot threes. So I think that's their biggest strength, the Celtics' uh, balance and lack of a weakness on offense. All right, I'll buy that, and I kind of like that actually. Here's what I think, and I don't want to just throw one specific thing out there because when I look at this series – I think that you have to win these little tiny areas, and I think Boston wins a lot of these. As I'm looking through all the stats, and uh, and I could look and say, well, Golden State is so much better here, and they're so much better here. Where is Boston going to make up You know these little things? And, and there are little areas that Boston is going to be able to consistently beat, and I think that that is probably – you know, the way that I want to word it, it's the small little areas that Boston will consistently win. And it's probably going to come from the free throw line where they get to the free throw line more. They have a little bit better of a free throw percentage, um, the, you know, with turnovers. They, they have less turnovers. Uh, they, they, they generate more points off of turnovers. So I think it's the little areas that Boston, if you take, let's just say we took, you know, 10 little areas for Boston and 10 for Golden State. Uh, Boston might win eight out of 10 and they're going to do it by a tick at eight out of those 10. And eventually that will add up. That will add up in this series because these games aren't going to be more than likely blowouts. Golden State's only favored here by three and a half at home. 
And I'm guessing Boston's probably going to be like a two, two, two and a half point favorite, you know, when they're at home. So this is going to be, you know, a series that's going to be close, at least right now when we look at this. And these little areas, I think, are going to help Boston. So I think that's the strength is that they don't lack in a lot of the small areas. It's a tick here. It's a tick there. And I think that that's probably one of the biggest strengths of this team is that they don't have a whole lot of holes. So that's what I'm looking at for Boston with their strengths. Let's talk Boston weakness. I'll go first on this one. I'll make this one really quick, McKenzie. I think the Boston Celtics' biggest weakness is their first and third quarters. Go through the entire playoffs and look at the first and third quarter results. They're completely Jekyll and Hyde, where they can go out there and they can and they can win a quarter 37 to 14, and then they could come out of the break and they can they can go down uh, 39 to 17. And I think against a team like the Warriors, you need to be even keel you can't have quarters like that because the warriors probably are not going to let you blow them out uh like we've seen them do to the miami heat where you know i think it was like a 39 to 17 uh that actually might have been miami who did that to boston but there were there were monster quarters uh that boston went out there and and looked really bad i don't think they could do that against golden state golden state's not going to get blown out uh in some of these quarters and i feel like boston needs to be more consistent and, and avoid, you know, the, uh, the 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 really highs, the, the real highs and the real lows, you know, going into start the game and coming out of the halftime break. And I'm sure you've seen that, McKenzie, you know, throughout these playoffs where it was like, this is not the team I just saw in the first half. And this is not the team that, you know, I saw in the last game. Like something has to, something has to give here with Boston, you know, with the way that they're playing these first and third quarters. So, they have to clean that up. They have to remain more consistent, uh, I think, at least you know, w- with the bad quarters um, than, the, than the good. So that's where I'm going with Boston's biggest weakness. They just need to go ahead and they, re- they need to remain consistent uh, throughout, or I think that, uh, that that could spell trouble. You stole mine. Inconsistency. That, that was going to be mine. And I think it, has, it goes back to how egalitarian they are. The fact that they have five guys that can put it on the ground and shoot means Jason Tatum says, okay, it's the second half. Uh, if I haven't going or if, if I don't have it going, if they're doubling me, I can just pass it off. We're going to get a good shot. But when you rely on so many different guys, if, if Marcus Smart is cold, but that's the guy they're leaving open, you can miss six shots in a row. And the best example of this was game one of the last series, in Eastern Conference Finals. They were doing good. They had an eight-point lead entering the half. And then Robert Williams wasn't right. And Jason Tatum didn't have it going. And J- Jimmy Butler exploded. They won. The Heat did. They won that quarter by 25 points, and it kind of made it a series. You kind of flip that quarter, and it probably is a five-game series. It's very different, uh, and they weren't able to snap themselves out of it. A big thing that I'm going to be watching, again, is Robert Williams and his health because uh, we were talking about this a little bit in pre-production. He hasn't been good. Last two games, you know, one rebound, uh, only 15 minutes. Bill Simmons was saying they shouldn't have played him that much. Uh, he just didn't look right, but... The last time he had an extended break, and he's going to have three days off between Game 7 and Game 1, uh, he missed four games of the Bucks series. He had 10 days off, came back, he played the most minutes that he had, 28 minutes, and he scored the most points. Uh, so this little mini break, I do think, I'll be curious. That's the biggest thing that I'm going to be looking at in Game 1 if I want to get involved in the series on the Celtics. Because uh, all the things you're mentioning, all the little things, all the things that don't show up uh, necessarily on SportsCenter kind of – Favor Boston in this series. One thing, the, the line moved 30 cents off of nothing, really. You know, an extra game had to be played. And 
You mentioned free throws and turnovers, a little bit advantage in, in the Celtics' favor. And this is the clincher for me, why I think after uh, Boston probably plays a poor game one, they might have some value uh, in game two and on. Golden State, number one on offense. You know, the number one thing that people like to see in these playoffs, number one on offense. The Celtics, number two on defense. Uh, only the Bucks actually had slightly better numbers uh, defensive metric-wise. So that's why I think the public is going gonna, is gonna to love Golden State, especially if they look dominant in game one. And I don't think that they're necessarily that far apart. I think these are teams, two best teams in the league are pretty even. Uh, third quarter, I'll throw out a bonus best bet. Third quarter, you mentioned it. The Celtics are, that's the one quarter they haven't won in these playoffs, and the Warriors have been dominant in the third quarter. You can get that right now at minus 140 on FanDuel. And here's why I like it. Teams off of a game seven generally underperform only 33% straight up, 38% ATS when a team is not off a of game seven. And it really shows up in the third quarter. That's when your legs die. We saw it last series with the Celtics uh, losing by 25 in the third quarter to the Heat. Warriors only off five games. Heat were off six games. Warriors only off five games. Extra rested. That's when I think it shows up. Uh, so that'll be my best bet. The third quarter, the Warriors minus the 140. Yeah, I don't mind that one at all. I kind of dig that myself. You know, you mentioned consistency as the Celtics' biggest weakness, and, and I'm right with you with that. I think when it comes to the stars, the one player that has disappeared between Steph and Tatum, I think we can agree it was Tatum, that he needs to be more consistent. You know, we were watching Game 7, and the the broadcast crew was like, hey, Tatum needs to step up. He needs to start taking over this game. And he eventually did, but there have been games throughout the entire playoffs where he just didn't show up, where it was 10 points here, uh, it was 12 points there, and I don't believe he can do that, you know, in these finals. One thing that is consistent, though, McKenzie, and I think that we should probably circle back to the Williams thing. You mentioned, like, he needs time. And we've seen it throughout the playoffs where, you know, a guy's banged up. We'll go back to Jimmy Butler, like, when he went out with a knee soreness, and then he comes back, you know, and scores, what, like 40-some points or whatever he put up. He went bonkers. So he's going to need time. And everything that we're looking at with Williams says that, with some extra rest, he's going to come back and he's going to be a factor in this game. But if he if they get pushed, I think, McKenzie, where, you know, they have to rely on him for two, three, four games in a row to go out there and try to put minutes up and put up statistics, I believe that Golden State eventually is going to be able to chew into that. But with that said, I think that that could be a concern for me for game one. And I'm not sure how you view Boston going into this game or, or you know, if you like them or if you don't, but do you push Williams in game one, knowing that this might be the, the, the hardest game for you to pull out with the win? Do they play him a limited amount and say, you know what, let's go ahead and let's play him a little bit more in game two, or maybe even potentially, why don't we save Williams for at home? Maybe we could steal one on the road without really pushing the big guy uh, you know, to, to the extreme on the road, which are going to be our hardest game. So I wonder maybe if, if we – if we consider maybe playing Williams under some uh, some points, rebounds, and assists, maybe points, rebounds, you know, maybe looking at his unders here early because I feel like the more rest you give this guy and the proof is in the pudding with the stats from everything that we're seeing, that the more rest you give this guy, the better off he's going to go ahead and perform. So I don't know if that's something that you might want to go ahead and consider, but I think that that's something that we probably maybe should dig in a little bit more, you know, as the series goes on. 
Yes, and that's the kind of thing that you can hear one beat reporter kind of say it without saying it. Uh, maybe they don't say minutes restrictions, but maybe they say they'll be you know, looking to gear him up for game two. And remember Al Horford had COVID. That was out of nowhere before game one of the Heat. Marcus Smart was dealing with a foot. It wasn't uh, – it was definitely a pain tolerance injury, and they chose to rest him. Maybe the, the Horford COVID news kind of factored into that decision. Maybe they already had a plan – where they were going to ease themselves into the series. They're off of game seven. They have a rest disadvantage. So, yeah, look out for Robert Williams' news that – and I wouldn't be surprised you bring up – they might just save him for home. I mean, if they can give him two days off between games one and two and then two and three, then that's like a 10-day advantage. And then that's a 10-day rest. We saw the last time he had 10 days. He came back. He played 30 minutes. He scored almost 20 points. Could be a big difference. Could be a, a – a, strategical arrow that the Celtics end up firing. If the Warriors decide to go small ball, that he immediately comes off the court and maybe they, they, you know, maybe they throw him out there for a little bit and say, you know what, get, let's get him three, four minutes here, three, four minutes there. Uh, let's not push him at all, but let's just at least see what we have with him on the court. Maybe some, because eventually you, you know, you have to start playing chess and you have to start figuring out, you know, like where the matchups are going to be beneficial. But um, I think the Warriors present kind of a challenging proposition to the, to the Celtics, you know, with, uh, with the small ball lineup and seeing how, you know, seeing how Boston will react with Williams. So I'm going to be looking at that. That's certainly something I'll be digging into. So we talked about Boston's weaknesses. Let's talk about the Warriors biggest weakness. I'll let you go first on this one. I feel like maybe we have, maybe we have the same exact thing here because I think it was one of the things that's been talked about widely throughout the playoffs, but Warriors' biggest weakness for you, what are you looking at? I think it's complacency. And it sounds crazy in the NBA Finals, but I think if you look at some of the games in these playoffs, like Game 4 versus the Nuggets, and especially after Ja went down and then they lost by 50, I think very likely a mistake in Game 1 or 2 will be something that haunts them. I mean, we saw with Boston dropping games early that they really shouldn't have against the Bucs in the Heat. Ended up being a seven-game series. I think... The Warriors could find themselves in a longer battle than they than they than they would expect if they don't take uh, maybe game two after a win seriously. For example, I could see that happening. I'm thinking turnovers, and I think that that's probably going to be one of the one of the narratives going into this one is that the Warriors have to clean up their turnover issue. And to me, that is their biggest weakness. They can't go out there and play this high speed basketball where they're consistently just turning the ball over because Boston will chew them up uh, in the fast break and in transition. So it's pretty simple for me. It's it's that Golden State needs to clean up the turnovers. That's their biggest weakness. Um, that's not only haunted them, you know, in these playoffs and, and throughout the entire, you know, regular season, but that's haunted them for, you know, the years past too. I mean, that's, that's one of their biggest things. And, you know, they're lucky to get through, but at some point maybe that comes to, you know, bite them in the rear end one of these times where, you know, they just consistently turn the ball over too much and, and it costs them games. So I'm going to go with turnovers for Golden State's biggest weakness, biggest strength, Golden State. What are you looking at? Steph Curry. I mean, Steph Curry is uh, 99th percentile. If you look at any season, any playoff, as far as just impact on the court. And I know the Celtics have the defensive player of the year. I don't think there's anybody right now that can stay in front of Steph Curry. He's not hitting the shot as well as he has in the past. This is a career low, only 38% 
from three, still excellent number. A lot of people would die for 38% from three, but his driving I saw in the Dallas series seemed to be, uh, you know, he's a little bit bigger, a little bit slower. It's kind of what happened to Jordan, kind of what happens to great players. Their game changes and adapts, but I don't think he's slowed down at all. I think he's the way he impacts games is just a little bit different, but I think it's as elite as ever. And just to piggyback off of your point, I think uh, complacency and turnovers go hand in hand. It's just that little bit of mental edge. We saw this with the Celtics. The Celtics are 12-1 and straight up in ATS after a loss. And I think it's just they clean up the turnovers. In Game 7, unlike Game 6, they were a little bit more attuned to keeping the ball. And uh, that's why I think the Warriors kind of have to worry about that. If they're starting to rocking and rolling and they're winning by 18, they they sometimes lose a little bit of that uh, mental discipline. We saw it when Steve Kerr went out. Think about when their turnovers were at its worst, when they didn't have that offensive guy telling them how important each and every possession is. You know, it's funny you bring that up, too, because I didn't even consider that that curve was out for those games. And that was probably some of the worst games that we've seen, um, you know, from the Warriors in these playoffs. I'm not sure how many games they lost during that three game stretch, but I know there was at least one in there. And that team's been really good. You know, that team's been really good. You know, from the beginning of April, I think, what are they, like 17 and four or something like that uh, since April? I mean, yep. they've been rolling along. I'm going to say my biggest strength for the Golden State Warriors, and a lot of it has to do with Steph. I think they have a mental edge that has nothing to do with, um, you know, that they've been here and that they've done that. You know, we've already talked about the experience, but I think it's, you know, it's those soul crushing moments that they can that they can deliver to you that I don't think Boston had to deal with uh, at all this entire playoffs. Steph Curry will, he'll rip your heart out. And I think that, you know, in the Mavericks series, there were, there were moments in there and we talked about, you know, vintage Steph where, you know, he drops back and he, and he, and he busts one of those threes in your eye and he's out there dancing on you or he drives to the hoop and he gets it to go down. It's an at one. And there's just soul-crushing moment. We've seen it every year with this Warriors team and with Steph that they do that to you. And I worry a lot about these teams who have to, you know, play Golden State, especially when they have to go on the road to start out a series, if there's fear in their mind that um, that this could happen to them. And make no mistake about it, Golden State is going to do that to Boston in this series. And I wonder if Boston can get over that. And I think that that's one of the biggest strengths for Golden State is that they know they are going to have these moments. You know, how many times have I talked about the buzzsaw warriors? It's going to break out. You cannot stop it. It's going to happen. And if Steph's out there, you know, out there shaking and baking and, and cooking out there and dropping threes on you, it only compounds, you know, what that does to a team mentally on the other side. And I think somebody like Dallas, they weren't able to recuperate. I think somebody like, the Denver Nuggets, when that happened to them, they weren't able to recuperate. I wonder where Boston will be at mentally you know, when that does happen because it is going to happen. I think that that is something that Golden State um, possesses that a lot of teams, and I, 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 can, I believe that's one of the things that Golden State possesses that there probably aren't really many teams in this league that, that, that possess that same uh, soul-crushing uh, game that the Warriors have. So I don't know what you think about that, McKenzie. But I get that's probably not what people are thinking, but that's something that Jordan had, man. Like he he would go out there and he would play this mental game with you because at this level, you need to be strong physically, mentally, spiritually. 
and Golden State has that edge. Michael Jordan would talk about uh, a dunk is worth more than two points because you can just see the effect it has on the other team. And I think the modern equivalent might be the three ball, might be a Steph 40-footer in San Francisco or Oakland. Uh, And just the loudness, the literal decimal level of the crowd is different in the playoffs. And that's the question. I think you nailed it. That is the question is, are the Celtics going to be themselves? Because historically, they've done really well against the Warriors. They're 12-3-1 against the Warriors in the Steve Kerr era. They have the best trade-up record against the Warriors in the Steve Kerr area, the only team to have a winning record versus the Warriors. And they have the best ATS record. However, this is not the regular season. If if this was the regular season, the Celtics are probably a point better, but it's not. And you mentioned it, the Warriors, 17-4 and four straight up since April started. The only playoff team better, though, the Boston Celtics, 16-7 and seven ATS during that stretch. Uh, the only team better with a better ATS record out of any team that made the playoffs. So we have the best two best teams. Wouldn't be shocked, I should say. I would be surprised if only one of them looks like it because they've been here before and they're not going to be rattled. It'll be interesting. I do want to go ahead and talk about maybe a bet here, Mackenzie, that that we kind of you and I had talked about this and, and we're, you know, like looking at all this stuff and we're like, you know, let's take let's take a day to kind of digest everything and at least talk through some of the stuff. And this is how we end up, you know, coming up with the bets that we make is you and I, you know, we'll we'll do a pre production talk and and we'll text all day and we'll just start, you know, getting our thoughts out on paper. But, you know, this podcast was intended to go ahead and, and, and kind of do that. And one of the things that you and I were talking about uh, were the totals in this game and what we thought that we might see from both of these teams. Both of these teams are stacked with defensive players. And although these teams shoot threes, you know, we're sitting here kind of talking about, you know, what are some of the things that we expect throughout this series? And let's go back to uh, what we were talking about a little bit ago about some of the health with some of these players. The Warriors could get back Iguodala. Uh, reports are saying that that Gary Payton's going to come back. Um, he's one of the best defensive players, and then maybe Otto Porter might come back um, for the Warriors. I, you talked about depth, and I think that that certainly will help um, the Warriors' depth. But one of the things that we were thinking about is potentially a Game 3 alternate total under. And the reason being is because one, let's say Gary Payton doesn't come back game one, but he comes back uh, game two. Give him a game to go ahead and get his legs under him. And let's say he plays game three, uh, and they, 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 they go out on the road, and it's like, okay, cool, we have one of our better defensive players. Now, with Boston in mind, you know, we were just talking about Williams, that maybe they don't push him game one, game two. Maybe they bring him back at home and say, okay, cool, you know, we gave you a couple of looks, you know, in game one, game two. But tonight, you know, we're going to need we're going to need 27 minutes out of you. So maybe you get two defensive players on the floor uh, for both of these teams that that really you know make a difference. And I think it's going to take a game or two for these two teams to kind of feel each other out and say, you know, what here's what we need to do defensively to slow each other down. Uh, I think game one they kind of roll the ball out, McKenzie. That's just my opinion. And game two, uh, I know you had some trends saying that game two wasn't exactly the under game. Uh, that most people might think you and I are looking at like game three saying that might be one of the alternate totals that we could take where we can get a bunch of plus money. So as I'm just talking through this, is there anything that I said there that you disagree with or that you strongly agree with or, or anything else that you might want to throw on top of that? Yeah, a few things. Uh, I'll just confirm. Yes. Game two is the one game 
in NBA betting history that is not an under game. Every game, game one, game three through seven, are all historically 47% only over, so 53% unders or worse, especially as you get later. But game two is not. Game two is 52.5% to the over. Often describe it as a counter-strike game because a lot of defensive adjustments haven't been made yet, but a lot of, uh, okay, well, they're not playing this guy, they are playing this guy, and a lot of offensive adjustments seem to be effective in game two. The reason game three can be so powerful is it's a change of venue. So if the Warriors and the Celtics come out red hot, uh, oftentimes after game seven, your defense isn't all there. The Warriors might get, uh, you know, one of those 18-0 runs, you know, a couple times in this game. If everybody sees that, and that's the one thing that people see, we get over, over, then game three becomes a 60% under trend and the change of venue. So the hot shooting isn't as likely to continue. So yeah, 15 points, 20 points under with the kind of variance we're seeing in these games wouldn't be surprising at all. Could be some value there. All right, so with all that stuff that we just go ahead and went and covered there, why don't we go ahead and break down some of the trends that you had? You had some trends that you wanted to go ahead and talk about that you felt were uh, kind of important for this series. Yeah, so anytime you played a game seven, like I said, your defense isn't all the way back. Uh, in the next game, you're 60% to the over. That trend I wanted to talk about, and also I think I've already mentioned this, but if you're off a of game seven, the fewer games that your opponent played and the more rest that they have, uh, is all to your disadvantage is exactly what you would think where that rest shows up more if like the Warriors, they have five plus days off. So if you just played a game seven, you're versus a team that hadn't played even six games, you're 33% ATS and you're two and 13 if they've had five plus days more of rest. So that's why a lot of trends pointing towards a higher scoring game in a more Warriors favored game in game one. So let me ask you about this, McKenzie, and this is a trend kind of thing, but I don't know if you have this work in front of you, but this was something that I believe you mentioned on SOV, and maybe it was even on the Dream Podcast where you were talking about all NBA first teams uh, players, and I believe Jason Tatum was one of them this year, and the Warriors don't have one. Is there a specific trend when it comes to NBA first team players? Yes, and this is work that A.J. Hoffman did. Uh, we mentioned on the Dream Preview and on Straight Out of Vegas. So there's three exceptions to either you had an All-NBA player that year or for the Warriors, you had a guy that's won multiple All-NBAs in his career and as recently as the year before or two years before that. There was three exceptions. One of them is an actual exception. Uh, the 2004 Pistons, nobody knows how they did it. My book is just because Larry Bird is, I'm sorry, Larry Brown is the greatest coach of all time. He had five B-plus players. He made them believe. It was that Hollywood type story where they just, you know, upset of the century. Credit to them and the Lakers. The evil empire was crumbling. There was discontent between Kobe and Shaq. It was kind of just the perfect story. The gentleman sweep five game series 2004 is the one exception. Otherwise, the two exceptions were Isaiah Thomas, where he was behind Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson, arguably the greatest shooting guard and point guard in NBA history. So he wasn't an all NBA player, but he was obviously you know, in my opinion, a top 15 guy. So generally, you need a great player. Uh, Jason Tatum, a week ago, wasn't on this list, but now he's a first All-NBA, and hey, he's 4-1 and one straight up in ATS in Game 7. It's quite a bubbling playoff resume. If you look at 2000, 2001 Kobe, you look at Jason Tatum right now, very similar age, very similar stats. He doesn't really have that uh, that pop or that acclaim, but he's, he's making a name for himself, no doubt. So... 
one of the things that I thought was kind of interesting was Tatum coming out of the Milwaukee series was being regarded as like a top five NBA player in the league. And I think that you and I probably sat and did a podcast and we were like, yo, this dude's balling. And then going into the Miami series, those talks kind of died down. And I, I and look, I, I don't want to sit here and say that we were you know right and that we were wrong. But let's just say Tatum wins a title this year. In your opinion, you know, where does he go for NBA players, you know, going into next year? Is he top five? Is he top ten? Is he number one? You know, like Tatum wins right now, wins a title. You know, where are you putting him going into next year? I think he's arguably, I don't know, I, I think he's one beat away from being in that best player in the league conversation. And it's it's tough because he doesn't have some of the rebounding or assist numbers, but I always say this, at the end of every NBA game, there's going to be 40 rebounds for your team. There's going to be like 15, 20 assists. They're not giving away points. Points is the one stat that they're not just giving away. They don't mind if you're throwing into the corner and the guy's getting shots. They don't really mind if they don't get a defensive rebound. They'd rather get back an offensive rebound. They'd rather get back on defense most of the time in the modern NBA. Getting a tough bucket, especially as we get later in the playoffs, is the hardest thing to do. And he's proven it up to this point, 27 points per game, that he's been able to do it with the best of them. Obviously, there's one more round to go. These are the players to make the NBA Finals before the age of 20, uh, during their age 24 season or younger, uh, scoring 27 points per game. Kevin Durant did it in 2012. Jason Tatum did it in 2022. Kobe Bryant did it in 2001. That's it. That's the list. So I think when you're talking about uh, a claim, even if he only gets five rebounds and five assists a game like Kobe, uh, doing the toughest thing in basketball, getting those tough buckets, if he can do it. I mean, it's a big question. It's not – I'm not saying he's the best player right now. I'm not saying if he puts out 35 a game in the finals, yeah, he stakes his claim to that title. Uh, that's a big if, but he's on the trajectory right now. I agree with that. Now, here's what I will say, and I'll make a bold prediction here, but I think that – I think you might agree with this. If Steph Curry goes out and has that series and they win the title this year, I think Steph Curry is going to be regarded the best player in the NBA, without a doubt. And I think we're going to hear come, uh, you know, Monday morning quarterback shows, is Steph Curry a top five NBA all-time player? I think that is the conversation that we're going to have to deal with, McKenzie, uh, you know, for our for our pre, pre-prep show for, for straight out of Vegas. I think that's the conversation. Um, that we're going to have is that Steph Curry's the best player in the league, and is he a top five player all time? I believe that's where the conversation goes. If Curry goes out here and he's, uh, you know, launching up threes and and they and they beat Boston eventually, I'm not sure if you agree with that, but I think that's exactly where this conversation is going. I completely agree with you, and a lot of people think you know count the rings is a is a dumb way to look at sports, but if you ask Kobe Bryant or Michael Jordan, uh, you know what separates and how do they define the best of the best? how they have their own personal hierarchy. They say it's winning these time of year, winning these moments. And Steph Curry could easily be the difference. If he, you know, is shooting 50% from three, the Warriors going to be a very tough team to beat. Uh, if he looks like 2016 Steph Curry and people are wondering, has he hurt or something? And then no, he doesn't get that acclaim. It's totally different. So he's three and two right now in the finals. And just look at some of these guys and how much their legacy changed in that sixth champion experience. Obviously, Michael Jordan staying undefeated with the steal and the shot to clinch game six. Bill Russell was taken seven against the Lakers, prime West and Baylor. He improved to five and one. Think about how we look at him now. 
Magic Johnson was 4-2. In 1987, he got that victory. Kareem fell to 3-3. Three three. Kind of was different. He was kind of thought of as more of a stats guy, more of a longevity guy. Was the that loss the beginning of that conversation in 84? Arguably. And I think uh, the, the the biggest one, or the, the one that I think changed his personal legacy the most, was Kobe. He was 3-2 and two going up against the Magic. If he would have dropped that against Dwight Howard and a not-too-great Magic team, but he didn't. He shot as many times as he needed to, scored 30 a game, and they ended up winning the 2009 Finals. So Steph Curry could be 3-3 three and three at the end of this, or 4-2. and two. And I think his all-time greatness conversation, uh, yeah, deservedly takes a big swing based on that result. Yeah, I think people forget how out of the 50 weeks out of the year, uh, you know, that the, the, they just forget how important these two weeks are and how good you have to be, you know, to be in this moment, to get here, and to actually, you know, go ahead and, and win a title. Uh, with that said, Mackenzie, why don't we go ahead, since we're not going to go and give out picks, you know, for this podcast that, that we, you know, when it comes to player props and quarters and all that stuff like that. Uh, but why don't we go ahead, we'll do that on Wednesday. And why don't we go and we'll talk series and, and who we like for the series and, and what our thoughts are really quick with that. Uh, I like the Warriors. I have no problem laying uh, minus 160 with them. I think that they are the better team. I think they have the better player. I think they have the better players. I think they are the harder team to defend. Um, they, I believe when they get back some, some guys that are supposedly going to be healthy, that they're going to be deeper. And the uh, the home court advantage and the fact that, you know, that they are going to uh, eventually get four home games if this goes seven games in a series uh, could be the ultimate decider for me. I think Steph Curry makes all the difference in the world. Been here, done that. I believe he will eventually crush uh, Boston's soul. Um, he's humble in victory and humble in defeat. You know, it's kind of one of the things Conor McGregor says. Uh, Steph Curry is very quiet. And I think he's very quiet when uh, – when the lights are on and he's going to go out there and he's going to show um, potentially why he is the best player in the league. So I'm going to take the Warriors here, McKenzie. I'm not sure if it goes five, six or seven. I'm thinking it's going to go a little bit less than seven. I think the Warriors probably get this done in five or six. That's kind of where I'm at right now, but yeah, I like the Warriors. I agree. Uh, you know, if you're asking me to pick the series, I think Warriors and six is the most likely outcome. I don't really necessarily love the minus 160. I mean, this was minus 130 with the same teams a couple of days ago. So I think if forced bet, I would take the Celtics plus 130. Uh, I'll tell you a bet I like I like better than the Warriors, though. The Steph Curry plus 110 to win finals MVP. I think more so than in, in past years, this is a, a Curry-reliant team. Uh so I think that's a better bet to go. But for my pick, I will say the Celtics plus 130 offers slightly more value. Uh, could see this going down either way. All right. Well, there's a couple of picks for you guys. McKenzie and I uh, agree in there on the Warriors. But that'll wrap up the podcast. That'll wrap up episode 43 of RJ Bell's Dream Preview, the NBA edition. You guys know where to find McKenzie and I on Twitter at sleepyj underscore pregame at Mac and Rivers. You guys could always get us at pregame.com. Make sure you guys like, subscribe to the podcast. As I had mentioned, Mackenzie and I will be back on Wednesday. Uh, that'll be our picks podcast for the NBA Finals. I'd like to wish you guys all the best of luck. Enjoy the game.